welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Julian Jacobs, a senior economist at OMFIF, currently speaking right now with Daryl West, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation over at the Brookings Institution. He's in uh, governmental studies. And um, the topic of our conversation today is about artificial intelligence, specifically the role of AI in shaping the macro economy, uh, how central banks think, and also how AI might be affecting some of the socio-political dimensions of American politics and governance leading into the upcoming election. So, hi, Daryl. How are you? Really nice to be with you. Looking forward to our conversation. So, just to start, when you look at AI right now and the current LLM hype wave, what do you see? I see the acceleration of AI. I mean, I think people are going to be shocked how quickly some of the transformations take place. Like we're used to thinking about a change perhaps on a five to 10 year time horizon. I think we're really thinking much faster than that, probably uh, two to three years, if not uh, even uh, sooner. So uh, the latest advances in terms of large language models, I think are significant in the sense that they are really democratizing the technology. They're bringing very powerful AI tools really down to the ordinary person because you don't need a technical background to use AI anymore. You know, they're prompt driven and template driven. And so literally anybody can use them. And so I think it's going to open up a lot of advances. There's certainly going to be opportunities, certainly going to be major impacts on the economy, but then it also creates a lot of problems, a lot of risks that people need to be thinking about. And I suppose one of those risks, as much as it might be democratizing, is potentially the role in widening inequality and creating bigger fissures in access in other ways. Is that would you say that that's true? Uh, that is definitely true. I mean, for a long time, technology actually has been increasing and adding to inequality uh, in virtually every country and, and certainly around the world. I think some of the latest uh, wave of uh, new AI tools uh, could even uh, further uh, that. I know uh, you're very interested in the geographic distribution of uh, some of these uh, tools. There are great inequities on a geographic basis because in the United States, for example, you know, a lot of the tech development is really on the East Coast and the West Coast and then a few metropolitan areas in between. But, you know, most of the country is being left behind. When you look at venture capital investments, it's going into basically four states. Uh, so 46 states are on the verge of being left behind. So we do have to be careful about how technology already has shown that it will uh, elevate inequality, some of the latest tools may actually make that problem even worse. And these were themes that it seemed you were writing about um, in 2018 in the book, The Future of Work, Robots, AI, and Automation, which in some ways really captured what the literature at the time seemed to indicate about how AI might be impacting the economy, including that inequality angle that you're speaking about here. I'm curious, to what extent do you still agree with everything that you wrote in that book? To what extent are there new things that you might have uncovered since since writing that book? I mean, what the book talked about was really the impact of some of these emerging technologies on the workforce, on the labor market, and on the overall macroeconomic economy. And I think the book has actually held up pretty well. There certainly were a lot of warning signs that were on the horizon even five years ago. But, of course, the big change since then has been COVID. 
and just, you know, all the devastation that that uh, unleashed on uh, people. But I think from a technology standpoint, what COVID did was just really accelerate the innovation cycle. Uh, I've said in other settings, we probably pushed what might have been five years of digital change into five months or sometimes even five weeks. It, you know, it's like everybody had to very quickly adapt to remote work, uh, video conferencing uh, for medicine, online learning. I mean, it really kind of transformed a lot of different uh, sectors. Now, COVID is dissipating, but I do think a lot of those changes that took place uh, during uh, the pandemic are actually going to stay with us and will become permanent parts of the landscape. So if anything, what COVID did uh, was to accelerate some of the changes that were starting to pop up uh, five years ago uh, and really brought them front and center for virtually every country around the world. So in some ways now with the, you know, chat GPT, LLMs garnering so much public attention, does this feel like a significant moment to you in the history of AI or does this feel like a moment uh, in which the public is maybe catching up with the technology, but, you know, the progress in AI had been significant uh, already leading up to this moment? I think in the past, AI was really within the purview of coders, software designers, uh, engineers, and computer scientists. What the latest wave of generative AI is doing is really bringing those tools down to the average person. Like, you don't have to be a coder to use these tools. You know, they're prompt driven. Uh, you know, you can basically have uh, modules where you ask uh, the AI to develop a video. You kind of provide some parameters, you know, what you're looking for. Uh, and, and so, and, and, you know, the AI will then generate the uh, video. So it's kind of showing how these tools are going to become much more ubiquitous. The fact that so many more people, in fact, virtually anybody can use uh, these uh, tools. Uh, means that there's going to be a lot of new applications, a lot of new innovation in both good and bad uh, respects. And so our goal in this transition period really has to be to figure out how to encourage the useful uh, innovations, the socially productive uh, stuff, you know, AI for the public good, uh, but figuring out how to mitigate the criminal uses of uh, AI the disinformation that we know is going to be associated, like all the problematic applications that also right. are going to be out there. Right. And so just going back to something you uh, said about COVID and not hastening uh, the shift in some of these dynamics that you're talking about. Um, can you maybe explain the difference between automation and skill bias technological change and to what extent people, uh, you know, folks should be worried about automation, job displacement versus skill bias technological change, which maybe speaks not towards a loss of aggregate jobs, but maybe changes in the nature of jobs? I mean, automation has been around for decades, basically ever since the production line came on, uh, like uh, companies have been figuring out uh, ways to automate a routine uh, tasks. But I think some of the new technologies that we've seen uh, recently are different in the sense that a lot of the old automation really was targeted on routine tasks and therefore entry level uh, jobs. A lot of the new stuff is going to have an impact 
in a wide variety of ways, you know, not just entry level jobs, but professional jobs. Like there's a lot of automation coming into uh, finance. Uh, wealth management is using uh, AI. Uh, banks are starting to use uh, AI to make lending uh, decisions. So we're going to see this uh, play out in a lot of different respects. And so the types of skills that people need are going to be affected. Uh, there are definitely going to be jobs lost. There are going to be new jobs created, but people may not necessarily have the skills required for the new jobs. There's uh, kind of this thing called the mismatch hypothesis where uh, there are going to be jobs, but uh, insufficient labor uh, to support the skills that are really needed for some of those new positions. Okay. So I guess two follow-up questions on that then. Uh, one, what do we do to meet the demand for that those new jobs? And then second, does AI mark some uniquely different shift in the development of technology such that perhaps the pace at which AI automates or disrupts labor is so rapid that it's almost inconceivable for humans to catch up, whether it's in retraining or education and so on. What are your thoughts on that? There definitely is going to be very rapid adoption of some of these uh, tools. I mean, generative AI, you know, really kind of popped up just in the last uh, few months, but already, you know, I've just seen examples from, Almost every sector of people trying to figure out how to use that uh, for uh, those sectors. Uh, and there are jobs like graphic designers. You know, those people actually should be worried about their future uh, because we may not need somebody who manually does graphic design when there are automated tools uh, that can do that as well. Uh, the same thing is true in terms of video production and a wide variety of other things. And I think you're right that that what we are going to need to focus on as a society is both workforce development and lifelong learning, but the changes are going to happen so quickly that it's going to be a challenge for people to get the new skills that may be required next month or three months from now. Right. It's like people right. are going to have to adapt very rapidly. And so that's something people really need to pay attention to. So I, you know, and this begs a question, what's, what are the implications of getting it wrong? And I ask this uh, in part because very often in economic theory, you know, our intro to econ courses, we learn about the great fact of capitalism, which is interlinked with technological change, the notion of exponential growth uh, and improvements in standard of living. And so one might say in response, well, you know, yes, there's this disruption, just as there had been in the Industrial Revolution in early 20th century, but ultimately AI seems to be clearly a good thing to the extent that it's improving productivity after uh, decades of stag- stagnation. Um, why is it it's so important to get AI right and to make sure that our embrace of AI is inclusive? I mean, I think you're right. Uh, we have the potential to actually use AI to improve worker productivity, which, as you mentioned, has been stagnant for decades now. It's kind of the big mystery. Why hasn't past technologies done that? This current wave may actually do that because AI, is, at least in the short run, will be used to augment human performance. And so uh, it will provide us tools that will help all of us to become more efficient. But the danger is people being left behind, that the workforce transformation is going to take place so quickly that people are not going to have time to gear up, upskill, and retrain themselves for the new skills that might be required uh, for uh, new positions. So that is going to be a, a big challenge. I think we may 
need a new social contract. Like most countries, uh, certainly Western countries, basically have an industrial model still in terms of their public policies. We need to rethink our social contract for the digital era. There are going to be new challenges, and we're going to need new policies to help people cope with all these changes. So on the productivity point, what evidence do you see that productivity may be getting improved by AI? Is there any evidence to suggest that that's happening? I'm thinking, for example, of that Brynjolfsson paper that came uh, out maybe about a month ago. Do you see any evidence that AI is actually impacting productivity in a positive way? I mean, it's hard to know just because this is such a recent phenomena and the data collection right. lags uh, kind of the technological advancements. But I think people are anticipating that there could be improvements just in the sense that everybody's trying to figure out how to use these tools to make themselves more efficient and more productive. And so it may be within a period of a few months that there actually will be data that will demonstrate that. But, you know, that's something that, you know, empiricists need to be working on right now, collecting the data, analyzing right. the information and seeing you know exactly what that link is going to be. Right. And and that, I suppose, is a big topic for research, for social scientists on this topic, whereas it felt like for a long time, a lot of the data that had been collected and used as a proxy for technological disruption had been automation potential or exposure to AI as evidenced by job descriptions. But it felt very speculative and there wasn't necessarily hard data that we had supporting uh, that. So um, I'm wondering how, you know, maybe could you talk a little bit about how important that will be for social science research and for economists looking to to measure the effects of AI on the economy? I mean, when you look at past discussions about productivity, they were really heavily dependent on overly aggregated data collected by government agencies, uh, by and large. And what I'm hoping as we move forward is the digital era basically enables much more granular types of data just because we're all living our lives online. But the problem is all these data are really proprietary to those individual companies and they are not sharing the information. And I think every country needs to think seriously about ways to improve the data collection and ways for researchers and government officials to get access to that data for research purposes. Uh, because, you know, the public sector actually provides a lot of support for uh, the digital uh, companies in terms of infrastructure investment and, and uh, otherwise. And I think as a condition right. of the public money going in, there should be a responsibility to start sharing that information so we can actually develop much better measures of productivity and, uh, uh, and efficiency. Okay, so this this is another fascinating topic. Right now, um, there's in some ways what seems like a very jarring thing happening on Capitol Hill, which is a bunch of company tech companies asking to be regulated. What do you make of those requests to be regulated? I mean, this is the first time in 30 years since the technology revolution really unfolded that we've seen this because for most of that 30 year time period, the tech companies were very libertarian in their stance. Their common refrain was, we're going to innovate, stay out of our ways, and we'll take care of this. And nobody finds that answer satisfactory anymore, like everybody wants more uh, public oversight and more public uh, review. But the surprising thing is the tech companies themselves are uh, calling for uh, regulation because they understand there's a lot of public dissatisfaction 
There's fear and anxiety, not just on the job front, but privacy, uh, cybersecurity, uh, competition uh, policy, and a bunch of other things where they are vulnerable. And so I think they are looking for some human guardrails to be put in place because they understand their sector is going to get defined by the bad actors. You know, even if, let's say, you know, a majority of the companies are trying to do the right thing and trying to incorporate more ethical guidelines in what they do, the bottom 10 or 20 percent that end up using this stuff for really bad purposes are going to define the public perception. So they want to get ahead of that now to try and short circuit that so that they don't get held hostage to all the bad actors that are going to use these tools. Right. Do you think they're also trying to get ahead of the regulators themselves in order to maybe signal what they think the regulations should be? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, they want lighter types of uh, of uh, regulation. I mean, they're, the European Union, for example, has uh, kind of a heavier uh, right. approach to uh, regulation. So I think people are in agreement we need more regulation, but there's going to be a fight in terms of how intrusive and, and how much oversight there actually should be. But that's a conversation we need to be having. I think, you know, in the industrial era, it took government agencies a while to kind of get up to speed, but eventually there were regulatory regimes put in place and it, you know, protected consumers, provided a more uh, workplace uh, safety, uh, better uh, food uh, security. Uh, and so on. We need to be doing exactly the same thing for the digital era. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask a question now about um, U.S. politics and how this might be impacting upcoming election cycles. And then uh, hopefully we can end with a little bit of a discussion about central banking and finance. But uh, first, do you think AI will play a role in the upcoming 2024 election cycle? And if so, what form might that take? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, AI is already being uh, deployed in terms of fundraising, uh, campaign appeals. Uh, there are generative AI tools being used to develop fake videos. Uh, and, and the videos, by the way, look completely authentic, so it becomes almost impossible to distinguish uh, the uh, fake from the uh, real. Uh, I read a piece that's on the Brookings website right now on how AI could transform the 2024 election. The big fear that I expressed in that paper uh, was a tsunami of disinformation, because in democratizing the tools, we are also democratizing disinformation. Basically, anybody can both generate and disseminate completely false information. But this time, it's not just false text, but it could be false audio tapes, false videos. There could be candidates being put in positions where they're saying or doing things that sound very nefarious, but are completely false, but they look real. And so the risk is this could alter the dynamics of the campaign. The American election is expected to be pretty close. So we may be talking about, you know, what's going to uh, persuade the last 20 to 30,000 uh, voters in three or four key states. So it's a very small group of people who could end up deciding this election. We don't want the election to be decided based on disinformation. So, you know, when one hears that, given the public response to misinformation and the role, it seems, of misinformation in previous election cycles, it almost feels like, well, what can we do? I mean, how do we even begin to respond to that problem when we haven't even been able to deal with misinformation in in the traditional sense online. So do you 
is there any reason to be optimistic that we'll be able to deal with the challenges of misinformation uh, in time for the 2024 cycle? I mean, there is legislation that is pending on Capitol Hill right now to impose disclosure requirements so that if, for example, candidates are using generative AI uh, in their campaign advertising, they have to disclose that fact. Uh, I think there's actually a good chance uh, legislation like legislation like that will pass because both Republicans and Democrats are worried about this. They're worried the other side is going to use this uh, against them. So uh, that uh, could help. But that doesn't really address the broader issue of will disinformation actually affect voters. There's not likely to be any legislation or regulation that can really deal with that in the next year and a half. So we're basically in a situation where we just need more public education in terms of warning people about what is about to happen, encouraging people to rely on multiple sources of information. But it really is going to be a situation of voter beware. Like people are just going to have to be aware there's a lot of fake stuff that's going to happen in this uh, campaign and they just need to be vigilant about what they believe and what they don't believe. Yeah. Well, that's certainly a story that we're going to be keeping our, uh, our eyes on. Um, and we'll be following the developments in Capitol Hill very closely. Now, just to end this discussion, I'd like to ask how you think AI might be affecting monetary policy, the future of monetary policy in central banks. What do you imagine? Uh, central banks might be thinking about with respect to AI? Well, central banks really need to be keeping a close eye on all these AI developments because there are likely to be both micro and macroeconomic consequences that come out of what is going to be, I think, a very rapid transformation of the economy. And so people are going to have to just study and analyze how the technology is being utilized, what it means in terms of skills, how it affects jobs, and then how that affects various sectors and uh, the macro economy in general. So on interest rate policy, they, they're they in a very uh, uncertain time period in terms of uh, uh, what the economy is going to do and how it's going to be affected uh, by these uh, things. Uh, unfortunately, the data availability is very limited to them. That's the part that I worry about. Like, you know, if they had complete data, I would be completely confident that central banks could handle this, but we know they don't have uh, very good information on the digital transformation. So in the longer run, they need to improve their uh, data access uh, and the data tools that they have to track these types of changes because they're likely to unfold at a pretty rapid pace. And, you know, certainly one aspect of it that people have spoken about, the U.S. Treasury, for example, put out a paper um, in the last year specifically identifying skill-based technological change as a factor contributing to the decline in real interest rates. So, you know, it, it seems, is there, you know, is there potential that AI might continue to kindle that suppression of real interest rates? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, that certainly is going to be uh, one thing central bankers are going to be uh, looking at. And so... Uh, you know, it becomes harder to forecast the future of interest rates given all the, the various changes that are taking place simultaneously because you have changes in the technology, changes in business models, changes in the way employers are using uh, technologies, and then changes in how workers are going to uh, right. utilize uh, various kinds of tools. Right. So, Given, you know, this plethora of challenges that we've talked about, can you maybe speak about things that you're working on 
and how you are personally uh, in your research planning ahead for, um, you know, this AI shock and some of the issues that you're trying to tackle? I mean, what I'm really focused on mainly are the economic and political ramifications of AI. And we've discussed a, a number of them here, but I, I just want to warn people, the changes are going to happen much more rapidly than they're anticipating. The adoption rates are going to be more widespread. AI is going to become ubiquitous, even in ways that people may not be aware of. They may use particular applications and not be aware that AI is actually driving uh, the way uh, those uh, apps uh, operate. And so they definitely need to educate themselves about AI and try and stay on top of how these new tools are going to affect a variety of both political and economic phenomena. All right, Daryl, thank you so much for your time. For listeners, you can read much more of Omfif's work on artificial intelligence on our website. We're going to have an upcoming roundtable next week on AI and central banking. And that is part of a series of roundtables that we'll be running on the future of central banking and artificial intelligence. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Omfif podcast.